to episode 29 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast about journalists. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with more than eight years' experience in Brazil and China. This week, I'm bringing you someone I've wanted to speak to on the podcast for a long time. Anthony Bodel is a correspondent for Reuters in Brasilia. But wait, I'm also a correspondent for Reuters in Brasilia. Indeed, we sit next to each other in the bureau, and Anthony has shown me the rope since I first arrived in Brazil three years ago. Anthony has a lot of knowledge to share. He's been covering the Americas, mostly Latin America, since the 1980s. We would be having lunch in the food court in our building, and he'd just casually drop what it was like to go to parties when he lived in Chile under the dictator Augusto Pinochet. So I knew I had to sit down with him to get the full story. I had really hoped to do it in person and held out hopes for that for several months. But unfortunately, with the coronavirus pandemic, I realized it meant I could be waiting up to a year to do the interview. So in the end, this interview is brought to you by Skype, like most of my others. Anthony's stories speak for themselves regardless, though. Whether he was covering a seven-hour-long speech given by Fidel Castro, or whether he was crossing the Atlantic twice by cargo ship, or even having the Chilean authorities break into his apartment to steal his computer. Now, he is Reuters' lead political correspondent in Brazil, and really has his finger on the pulse of Brazilian politics in a way that I can't claim. Whether it's knowing which minister used to rob banks under the Brazilian military dictatorship or having his vast network of tangled diplomats from a huge variety of countries. He reminds me of the old Sovietologists or Kremlinologists asking questions like, who is that guy in the picture standing five to the right of President Bolsonaro? They say that journalists write the first draft of history, and I think you'll feel listening to Anthony's life that he has certainly been writing the first draft for Latin America. So without further ado... Here's my interview with Anthony Bodel, Reuters' chief political correspondent in Brasilia, Brazil. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Pleasure to be here, Jake. I haven't seen you for two months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at least. Social distancing. Seems like ages ago. Yeah, normally we work pretty darn close together, probably not two meters apart even, but yeah, haven't been able to go to the office to warm up, I usually start with, if you could just tell me a little bit about what your current surroundings are, what time it is, where you are geographically, and a little bit about what your last week of work has been like. Sure. Well, I, we've been working at home for a couple of months now. I'm fortunate enough to live in a house with a garden with a dog and a cat. Actually, there are two dogs now because we've got a second one and a pool. And it's been pretty sunny. So these are very comfortable surroundings to be able to work in. I was working on several stories this week and I wasn't doing the main political story, the spot story, but every week is quite tense. You know, with this government, it's hard to know what he's going to do next, President Bolsonaro. He does lives on Facebook, so one has to be on one's toes constantly whenever he's speaking to see if he's saying anything. But there is tension in Brasilia because he's under investigation, an investigation authorized by the Supreme Court. So he's under pressure. He has his hardcore followers who are very anti-democratic. I mean, they have been calling for military intervention and closing of the Supreme Court and even of Congress because he's being investigated. And so this has created a lot of confusion and tension in the country. However, the main piece I did this week was an analysis on the political situation, basically saying his grip on power has been rattled, but he has made certain moves to make sure that he doesn't get impeached in Congress. 
he's handed out some jobs, some sinecures, you know, some appointments to centrist parties that during his campaign he said he would never talk to, never negotiate with. He wanted to renew Brazilian politics and wipe out corruption. But he's had to fall into traditional practices of handing out jobs to ensure he has votes in Congress, enough votes to block an impeachment. There are 30-odd requests for his impeachment, but they are not going to go anywhere. Basically, in Congress, the climate is that during this pandemic, and Brazil is perhaps the epicenter of the United States and in the world with a pandemic that's out of control, the consensus in Congress is that this is not the time to impeach the president. It just makes matters worse. You know, you have a major public health crisis, an economic crisis, and it just would make matters worse to start impeaching the president at this point. Yeah, that was a good piece. I think there's so much chatter all the time about Bolsonaro won't finish his four years. He'll be out. He'll be. But, you know, when you actually look at, well, what would it take? Impeachment? Is it going to happen? No, not really. It's just seems to be uh, chatter. Anyway, yeah, it was a great piece. I'll throw up a link to it and all the stories we talk about over the course of the interview provided there on the internet. <laughs> I know you sent me some that were in paper that we might talk about. But so for the first section of the interview, it's really biographical about how you got to where you are today. And we like to start way, way back at the beginning with where were you born and um, what was growing up like and a little bit about your school years and if you started to show any interest in journalism early on. Yeah, well, I was born in Argentina in Buenos Aires of a Anglo-Argentine family. You know, we spoke English at home and my family was very connected to England. I was sent to school after doing primary school in Argentina at an English boarding school, actually, in Cordoba, St. Paul's. At the age of 13, I was sent to a public school in England, the same one that my father had gone to before the Second World War. And so I spent four years at a boarding school. It was a Catholic boarding school run by Benedictine monks, actually, who used to like their drinks, actually. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's see, from school, my interest in journalism, I remember giving a talk once, Basically, it was on Mahatma Gandhi. Researching for that was a real eye-opener for me, you know, on world affairs and colonialism. I think I was definitely interested in international information, shall we say. From there, I went to study in Liverpool. I did modern languages and history, and that was very interesting. It was wonderful living in Liverpool, such an interesting city that was badly bombed during the Second World War. And I lived in Liverpool 8, which was like a ghetto of the dregs of the British Empire and students. And there's a lot of music and theatre and drugs, of course. It is a great place to live as a student. Then I did an MA in politics at Essex University, specialising in Latin American politics, which was great because it got me prepared for what was coming later. And at Essex in Colchester, I met a Venezuelan student and we got married in London. And when she finished her MA, we went out to Venezuela. The idea was to teach political theory at a Venezuelan university. I mean, this was total wishful thinking. I never even got <laughs> close to an, an interview. So one day I went and knocked on the local English language newspaper, the Daily Journal, circulation 7,000, which is pretty reasonable, a seven-day-a-week daily, basically because the 
oil industry in Venezuela. This was 1980. The oil industry had been set up by American companies. So it was an oil community. And so there was a market for this newspaper. And it was a great school of journalism for me. So I walked in there and there was a former Reuters correspondent who was the news editor, Keith Grant. And he asked me a few questions, pointed me at an old typewriter, those that you'd have to sling the carriage across to type on, and passed me a press release and said, do me three paragraphs. And that was it. That's where I started. And about a year later, he left to rejoin Reuters, and I took his job as the news editor of the mm-hmm. Daily Journal. So that was a tremendous school because we'd lay out the newspaper in photographs. We had AP and UPI cables coming in. It was all typeset. We had a, a room of proofreaders. They were all Trinidadian. They were hilarious. And they looked for mistakes before we went to print. It was a great place to start. And then I moved to Rio, Rio de Janeiro, after three years in Venezuela. And it was the 1982 big debt crisis in Latin America. And there were also going to be the first elections for governor in Brazil after a decade and a half of military dictatorship. So UPI hired me to cover these elections. And that's where I started in the news agency business. And less than a year later, April 83, I got a call from New York, the Latin American editor. Hey, hey, Tony, do you want to go to Chile? Would you like to go to Chile? We need a, a bureau chief there. So I went off to Chile. It was a no-brainer. I mean, I hated leaving Rio, but it was the Chile of Pinochet, and things were beginning to go wrong for Pinochet in Chile. So I went to work in Chile as a bureau chief for UPI. And that was an amazing experience because just as I got there, protests began against Pinochet. In fact, the very weekend, I got there on a Wednesday, on the Saturday, the photographer said, come on, come on, we're going. I said, where? Oh, La Victoria. This was a militant sort of working class neighborhood. And we drove out there and it was a terrible scene. The military were there and they were taking all the men out of the homes onto a football field and nobody knew what was going on. And this was 10 years after the coup, right? So things were, you know, there was still a curfew. The military rule was still very severe. And mm-hmm. photographers started taking some photos. And then a guy came up with a shorn off shotgun and said, what are you guys doing here? Get out of here. Or you'd be hurt. So we had to leave. And that was my introduction to Pinochet's Chile. And that was April. Two weeks later, May 1st, there was the first protest in the copper mines, Rodolfo Seguel. And a very interesting process then began, basically because the United States changed its ambassador in Chile. At that time, we had Walesa in Poland, so Reagan's government could not be demanding democracy in Poland while it had this eyesore of a dictator in Chile. So the new ambassador, Harry Barnes, top-level ambassador, came to Chile His intention was to find a way to organize a transition, to help a transition with the opposition by bringing them in. Chile had a model transition back to democracy, basically because the opposition, it separated from the Communist Party and the Socialists and the Christian Democrats came in and accepted Pinochet's constitution, which It was a 16-year constitution, but after eight years, it had a referendum. His ideologue said, 
dictators never lose referendums. We put a, <laughs> a referendum here after eight years. It looks good. And so the opposition, and this was backed by the United States, accepted the constitution and started organizing for this plebiscite in 1988, October. And exiles were allowed back. A few opposition publications were allowed, a newspaper and gradually things got really interesting. The campaign for the no was an amazing campaign. And there's a wonderful film called No, actually, about this, this campaign. The no vote being against continuing yeah, the dictatorship. Exactly. Okay. Right, giving him another eight years. And by the way, by then, Reuters had hired me ahead of this referendum. So that's where I joined Reuters July 1st, 1988 in Chile. And October, so you covered like all the way through to the end of Pinochet, basically. That's right. Yeah. Through to the democratically elected president who was the leader of the opposition. Right. Then I needed to move on. I'd been in Chile for oh, nine years, was it? Just out of curiosity, we all know now how brutal of a dictatorship in terms of disappearing people and things like that, that Pinochet's dictatorship was. How does it work to be a journalist under that type of regime? At the time, did you know how bad it was? Was it very clear that people were getting disappeared all the time? Was there concern about getting kicked out? Was there concern that they were severely limiting your reporting? How, how did it all work? I never felt afraid. I knew they wouldn't physically do anything to a foreign correspondent. But while I was there, the journalists were kidnapped and killed. I mean, it was a terrible case of one journalist. There were three members of the Communist Party and their bodies appeared with slit throats near the airport. It was shocking. I think I was 85. So people were disappearing. It wasn't as bad as the first years after the coup when maybe about 3,500 people disappeared or died in the coup and the years of repression that followed, mainly people on the left who were hunted down and tortured and killed. So when I was there 10 years later, you know, there was still a curfew the first year I was there. You know, then these protests began, monthly protests against Pinochet in the neighborhoods. And he used troops on the streets. The troops would go and, and just shoot at houses where people were protesting. And you'd have protests where 17 people died in one night. So there was pressure and a lot of tear gas, of course, and water cannon on the main streets. Um, and journalists show up dead, slit throats, like protesters die. I mean, would you write all those stories? We would, yeah. That was the thing. We were informing the world of what was going on there. And it was a very challenging job, but very important, I think. And there was a lot of interest when the protests started against Pinochet. Yeah, I later worked in Cuba, and it's interesting to compare. I was a bureau chief in Cuba for six years. It was interesting to compare because there were certain similarities, although these different ends of the political spectrum. For instance, in both countries when I arrived at the beginning my phone was tapped. I realized, you know, when I'd go out of town on a weekend or reporting, when I came back home, the phone would ring and there'd be nobody answering. They just wanted to know whether I was in the house. And that happened in Cuba as well, <laughs> the first six months. And then they realized that at home, I didn't invite dissidents. Home was my private life. And there was nothing happening at my home that they would be worried about. They had enough infiltrators and spies in my office to control what I was doing there. And I would only invite dissidents to the office. In Chile, the first year, I was invited once to a communist, a communist party. It was completely banned, of course. And they were beginning to take up 
armed struggle, which the Communist Party in Chile never done before, the Frente Patriotico Manuel Rodriguez, who eventually, with some arms landed from a Cuban fishing boat, there were American weapons that had been left in Vietnam, were used to ambush Pinochet. And they actually hit his Mercedes-Benz with an old American LAW, a light anti-tank weapon, that didn't explode. Oh, wow. They almost killed him. They almost killed him, yeah. <laughs> So the Communist Party was underground. I was invited once through a Chilean journalist who worked for France Press to a press conference. And it was like this. I was told I'd have to be outside a shop in a certain part of Santiago with a newspaper under my arm. <laughs> and somebody would come along and say a word and I had to answer the password, as it were. And then I was put in a car and driven around for about an hour. <laughs> Before I, I, I didn't know where I was going. I was, you know, lying in the back of the car to this house where there was a communist leader. So yeah, it was quite exciting, I must say. I was also expelled at one point, one day at UPI. This was before Reuters. I suddenly saw through the glass doors of the bureau a bunch of men, and one came in, big fat policeman. He came in and asked for me, and I went up to him. There was a counter there. And he said, we found your passport. Oh. I said, that's weird. So I went into my office, <laughs> found my passport, brought it out, and he grabbed it. And he said, now come with us. <laughs> and he took me to the police headquarters. And basically, I was really worried. I was sweating like a pig. And for about half an hour, I was shitting bricks, excuse the expression, until the police chief called me into his office. And he said, look, I don't know what you've done. But I got orders to put you in the next plane out of here. And effectively, they drove me to the airport, right onto the tarmac. And it was a Lanchile flight to Peru. So I was expelled, allegedly, because I'd written a story that they didn't like. In fact, I never wrote the story, and it never went out on the international war. But we had a domestic service in Spanish. And this story did have a mistake. It was reporting early morning that there'd been a death in a, a working-class neighborhood during a protest. And, of course, the government was trying to keep its international image clean. So that was the reason they expelled me. And I spent 13 days in Lima. And Chile had a very good ambassador in Washington, where UPI's headquarters were. And Erasuris, his name was. And he went and negotiated with UPI. And I was allowed back after 13 days. It was wonderful because I could continue working in Chile. And you had sent me a story about your apartment being broken into. Was that during this time or was that a different? No, I was still working for UPI. It was 1987. The Pope had just visited John Paul II and it was a year before I joined Reuters. I was working on a story, actually, it's a story I was very proud of, actually, because uh, eventually got published on the front page of the Miami Herald. Miami Herald had an international edition in those days, which was very well read in Latin America, international edition in English, and it was on the front page, and it was a story about... When Carter applied the arms embargo against Chile's military government for human rights violations, the military government asked the private sector to produce weapons for its defenses against Argentina, Peru, its rivals on borders, Beagle Channel, mm -hmm. etc. So there was a chemical engineer called Carlos Cardoin. He worked in the mining industry with explosives. He produced explosives for Chile's immense mining industry, the copper industry. 
And so he turned to making armored cars, the Swiss Moag armored cars. And then he got the license to produce an American design cluster bomb. He interviewed him several times. He was a smart guy. He was making a lot of money. But he started selling to Iraq. And this is a time when the United States was encouraging people to sell weapons to Iraq because the enemy was Iran, right? Mm -hmm. And so... I even found that there was an Iraqi jumbo jet that had a flight to Rio. It arrived there at night and then continued to Chile and load up with these. Obviously, they had no detonator, but they were flying these cluster bombs back to Iraq in the same passenger plane. And eventually, Cardoin, Carlos Cardoin was the name of the businessman, eventually started producing them in Iraq. He had a plant there. But the story I got hold of was that the... Army wanted to get in on this business. There was a joint venture with a rival of Cardoin's, a company called Ferrimar, that started producing the same bomb, basically, because one of Cardoin's managers left, joined Ferrimar with the blueprints. I knew that manager, and so I knew, because I'd interviewed him before he left, and I knew exactly what he was doing. He joined Ferrimar, and they started producing the bomb, and they started selling it to Iran in this Iran-Iraq war. It wasn't very successful, I don't think. But anyhow, my story was about how this was being done. Obviously, they were being sent to another country. In this case, it was Nigeria. And I don't know how many of these bombs Iran eventually bought, but it was a good story. And while I was reporting that story, it was actually a week after the Pope had visit. My house was broken into, yes. And I came home in the evening, and my Chilean partner wasn't there either. And these people had knocked down the door. They'd kicked the door in, the front door in, and searched everything. My papers were all on the floor, and her papers also. And they tried to make it look like a burglary. So the television had the wires wrapped around it and on the sofa, ready to be moved out. But what was missing was my first computer that I ever owned, an Apple IIc, <laughs> and that was very painful. And obviously they got wind that I was reporting on this story about Ferrimar, and they wanted my information, and they took the computer and the diskettes, right, those floppies that we used to have. And I called the police, of course, and the police came, and they looked at the door, and the policeman said to me, do you have any political problems? Because that's how we go into houses. <laughs> <laughs> so it was in the newspapers the next day, actually. And I fortunately had notes in my office and basically I didn't lose information that I really needed. And I could proceed with the story and it was published a month later. And there wasn't anything too sensitive on the computer no, it was just the basics. No sources, because I think they were just wanting, I imagine it was army intelligence. You know, the information about Cardoin selling to Iran was pretty public. But the fact that this rival company was trying to get in on the action and it was linked to the army was the problem. Gotcha. And then I wanted to ask about if and when and how you ever met Pinochet. Oh, yeah. Pinochet, the anniversary of the coup was the 11th of September a year, right? The coup in 73. And he would hold a te deum, not in the Catholic Church, because the Catholic Church was full of communists, he would say. They were helping the human rights situation and defending people. So he would go to the Lutheran 
cathedral in Santiago with a cape, like a German Wehrmacht general with a long cape. And he would celebrate the Tadeum, the Thanksgiving Mass for the coup. There would also be a military parade and a speech, right, to the nation. It was like mm-hmm. his State of the Union speech once a year. Two weeks before that, he would invite the press First, on one day, the Chilean press, and then the foreign press. And this was the one moment that we got to meet Pinochet once a year. Now, this was 1984. And that year, for some reason, the head of the information office, Dinacos, was an agronomist who knew nothing about the media. We arrived at the Moneda presidential palace, the presidential palace that was bombed in the coup, the famous photos of it on fire, etc. Allende committed suicide inside. And we arrived at the Moneda, and this guy from Dinaco said, look, leave your tape recorders here. This year, it's going to be off the record, right? Okay, mm-hmm. very strange. I mean, this was the president wanting to speak to the world. It was strange that it would be off the record. So we left our tape recorders there, and then we went up. Pinochet came along, and we sat down. He shook hands with everybody, gave the women journalists kisses that they didn't really like. But then we <laughs> sat down, and the first question was, General, is this, is this on the record or off the record? And Pinochet said, oh, this is on the record. I'm recording, and he put his hand under the table. I'm recording it myself. <laughs> so at that <laughs> point, the Reuters correspondent, Simon Altman, I was still working for UPI, produced a little, he had the best technology, a little micro tape recorder, right, that mm-hmm. he just slipped into his pocket instead of leaving downstairs. So he produced it and put it on the table to record what Pinochet was saying, much to the annoyance of the Dinakos guy who was green in the face by them. Anyhow, we did the press conference and we all went off and wrote our stories. And then to our surprise, the afternoon paper, La Segunda, appeared with a cooked version of what Pinochet had said. And this was the plan of the Dinakos guy, of course, where Pinochet said, I can't do that because of the Constitution. He had really said, no, I'm not going to do that. So that kind of thing. So we were put on the spot because we'd all published our stories, the news agencies. So fortunately, Simon had this recording, which we transcribed the main controversial points. And we sent out statements to all the embassies, to international press organizations, and to the Chilean newspapers, like El Mercurio, who was very pro-Pinochet. They felt obliged the next day to publish brief stories recording this conflict and how the government had tried to manipulate information and what had really been said. There were brief stories, but the fact that it was in the Chilean media really annoyed the government. They were really pissed off and never invited us again. In subsequent years, his annual pre-speech meeting with the foreign press was cancelled. What was your impression of him? Did you get any good information out of it or did he try to spin things or what kind of guy was he like? Yeah, I mean, well, I only went to the 1984 one because then there were no more. 83, 84, I went to two of them. He would say things that would be news abroad, so we'd always get a story out of him, whether it was anything he said about Argentina or the neighbors and what his intentions were. Yeah, there was always news from this one press conference that we would have with him. Would you, like, grill him about human rights or anything, or did that not come up usually? Well, there were questions, I guess polite questions on what was happening, but he'd come up with 
stock answers on how these terrorists, communists, whatever, and not give any real explanation of what's going on in terms of repression. But he was very hardline. He'd say exactly what he felt about things. And the discourse was clear. He'd save the country from Marxism and communism with the coup. And there were questions about the economy, of course, because in 1982, well, many Latin American countries had crisis. They'd got terribly indebted and they were defaulting. And in the case of Chile, of course, you had Milton Friedman's Chicago boys. These were economists trained in the University of Chicago who had implemented his very liberal economic policies in Chile, and it went really wrong. And the economy, GDP dropped 14%. So there were a lot of questions about that and what they were doing to the economy and the unemployment it created. And of course, that economic situation was the backdrop for the protests that began in the following months, in the following year, in 83. And before we move on from Chile, I just want to bring up, if you're willing to talk about it, that you've mentioned in passing before that there are these curfews and you had to take ambulances around or something like that to get around after curfew. What was that all about? Well, when I got there to Santiago, there was still a curfew. And you had to be home by, I think it was 10 o'clock, and the curfew was until 6. Or maybe it was 11, I can't remember, but certainly until 6 in the morning. So if you went to a party and it was midnight, you had to stay until 6 before you could go home. But some Chileans had devised this interesting method of getting home. You needed some money, but you could pay an ambulance to come and pick you up. And the ambulance, of course, would get through the guards who were imposing the curfew and get you home. (laughs) (laughs) I never actually did that, but friends of mine had. Yeah, an essential service (laughs) doesn't have to abide by the curfew. Okay, cool. And then I guess the other thing, just before we move on, just in case anybody's not familiar with UPI, which you worked at before Reuters, it was one of the largest international wire services for a long time, right? I always wonder, like, what the hell happened to it? I'm not quite clear. It exists in some strange form still, I think, but it's basically disappeared. Yeah, it was AP's rival, and it was very big in Latin America. Newspapers like Mercurio and La Nación in Argentina, they wanted an alternative to AP. They wanted two sources of information about what was going on in the world and in Europe during the world wars, etc. So UPI was quite big in Chile. There was a domestic service. That's how big it was. But UPI ran into trouble in the States. Clients stopped buying the service. It was owned by Howard Scripps, was that? Is that the Chicago Tribune group? And eventually it was sold to a Mexican. At that point, the New York Times canceled, and that was like a death blow for UPI. Later, two Baha'i broadcasters from Atlanta bought it, and basically they were asset strippers. They sold off the best parts, which was the photo service and the photo archive. The photo service, of course, was bought by Reuters and has been a tremendous success since. But UPI just went downhill. After the two Baha'is owned it, I think the Washington Times now owns it, I believe. It has very few clients and it doesn't make much of a splash. But basically it fell into the hands of the Reverend Moon. I think I tried to look up its Wikipedia and it just has, you know, an office in Florida, 
churning out like weird content mill type stuff is what I read at least and not the original reporting around the world it used to be. But I guess so has gone many uh, wire service and media company. And it was a great, a great company to work for because it was small and run by journalists from Washington. So decisions were always taken by journalists. When I was offered to go from Brazil to Chile, it was a telephone call, get on the next plane. There was no contract or anything. It was a lot of fun. I miss those days, yeah. Oh, and I was just going to say when I do the New York Times crossword puzzle, and there's always the clue will be Reuters competitor, and it'll be three letters, and I'll always write down AFP, and it'll always be wrong. It will always be UPI. And I'm like, what decade is this crossword puzzle in? <laughs> like that UPI is considered Reuters competitor. But anyway, so uh, you join up with Reuters, you finish out your time in Chile, and where do you go from there? I wanted to move to North America. I mean, my first choice was to work as an editor in New York, but they came back and said, look, do you want to be the senior correspondent in Ottawa in Canada? And so I worked in Canada for three years. I actually call it three winters, yeah. Ottawa, the coldest place I've ever worked. But it was great. I learned how to skate on the Rideau Canal, the longest skating rink in the world. It was a fabulous place to learn how to skate. I was very lucky in Canada because... At that moment, there was the Quebec separatist movement was in full force, and there was an agreement that actually got voted down in a referendum. The Charlottetown Pact Agreement got voted down, but it really produced a lot of stories for us to report on, and I really enjoyed that. And I was also there when Brian Mulroney resigned. I almost lost my job at Reuters that night. I was actually out skating on the Rideau Canal, and I'd gone home and changed my pants because it was so cold and put ski pants on and left my beeper at home. And there I was skating on this lovely canal that ends in a lake. Well, the lake is just a plaza where they have ice festival with sculptures, even political satire and sculptures. But you also mm -hmm. have bars around it, and you can walk up on rubber up to the bars and actually have a drink while you're skating without taking your skates off. Amazing. Anyhow, while I was skating, the Toronto Star was reporting that Mulroney was resigning, had resigned. He was the prime minister? Uh, Brian Mulroney, otherwise known in the satirical mag, the Frank, Frank, as Brian Muldoon <laughs> and his wife Imelda, because she had lots of shoes, apparently. Anyhow, the Toronto Star was reporting that Mulroney was stepping down, and uh, the Canadian dollar was tanking in Asia. Asian markets are open, and I was out there skating. So, because I was like the national political correspondent in Ottawa, our main operation was in Toronto and the financial markets. So, I was very late on this story, and the next morning I got a very rude message from London saying that clients had been poorly served and complaining. So that was a bad moment. But anyhow, I had a lot of other good stories and my reporting was in general very good. So I put that behind me, that slip. And then Kim Campbell came along as prime minister and we had elections, general elections, which were a lot of fun because I got to cover both candidates, Jean Chrétien, otherwise known by Frank Magazine as Jean Crouton, and Kim Campbell, who was quite a piece of work. she come from nowhere, from Vancouver. And I was on her plane campaigning, 
and I went to several stops and then I bailed out in Newfoundland and did a story about fishermen and the Cod War with Europe in a place called Kidividi, which is a little fishing village outside St. John's. And basically that was one of the issues of the campaign, what to do about foreign fishing vessels on the outer banks and the depleting cod reserves. And then I was on Chrétien's plane as well, which was fun. And he went down to the, I was at the steelmaking city, Hamilton, and then somewhere else. And then I bailed out way up north in Yellowknife. And I did a story about the Inuit, how they'd get around on snowmobiles to go and vote. And I also was out in Vancouver to interview people about Kim Campbell. It was an interesting election. Jean Chrétien, of course, won. And being from Quebec, he kind of kept the Quebec issue under tabs. And he was an interesting guy, Jean Chrétien. He was from just outside Montreal. They said he couldn't speak English or French properly. <laughs> he had a terrible <laughs> accent. <laughs> <laughs> but he was very nice. He would meet with the foreign press and it was a very good person to deal with. Well, so was Brian Mulroney. I interviewed him twice in the prime minister's office. He was very good, but there were accusations of corruption against him. And from there, is that when you go to D.C. or is that when you go to Cuba? I moved to Washington. The Reuters General News Desk in New York, the idea was to wind it down and create a new proactive editing desk in Washington called the America's Desk. And the idea was that instead of the old style editing of copy that comes in, was to have a desk that actually jumped on stories and took the initiative. And so when they announced this, I was like the first person to apply and certainly the first person to get to Washington. John Whitesides came from Asia he was the second guy, and we worked together. There wasn't even a desk. We worked down with the Washington Bureau editors for the beginning. So this new desk was a great start. We had a top editor, Barry Moody, came from London. He was the head of the desk, and there were some very talented people working on it as it built up. It had challenges. One was the Oklahoma City bombing. This was the classic news-breaking story that this desk should have jumped on, and it didn't. It was very slow. So it didn't get off to a good start, the America's desk. <clears throat> and how long were you there for? I worked on the desk for about a year and a half. And then I had possibly the best job I've ever had or most enjoyed. I became the Latin American correspondent in Washington covering U.S. policy towards Latin America, Latin American affairs in general, be it at the State Department, the IMF, the World Bank, that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed doing that. And I did that for five years, actually, until I got the job as bureau chief in Havana. I moved there in 2002. When I moved to Cuba, it was after 9-11, of course. As a Latin American correspondent, I had the opportunity of being in a small group with George Bush W., he was about to receive Fox, the president of Mexico. This was like a high point of Mexico-U.S. relations. And Fox came to Washington. He spoke to the joint chambers of Congress. It was the closest that the United States ever came to resolving the immigrant issue with Mexico. Things were really going well. It was shortly before 9-11, so everything that was planned fell apart after that. 
But anyhow, before Fox came to town, George Bush did the same as Obama. He met with the Latin American press in Washington and people covering Latin America. And I arrived late and I had to sit on the side and not at the table. I tried to ask a question and I was shouted down by the aides that you have to be at the table to ask a question. But Bush noticed that. And when the thing was over, he stood up and came to me and shook my hand and said, what were you going to ask? And I thought that was marvelous. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I got my question in in the end. It was very nice of him. That's very nice of Bush. But he is supposed to be a very personable guy. So then you go to Cuba and I guess, yeah, just catch us up to the present. I jumped at the opportunity to work in Cuba. It was an amazing place to be. And I was there for six years until the Cubans decided they weren't going to renew my visa because, you know, I'd been there too long and I knew too much and they didn't want me anymore. <laughs> uh, I got there in 2002 and it was just when a dissident movement was beginning in Cuba. The first time a guy called Paya, Osvaldo Paya, a Christian Democrat, he was a hospital nurse, I think, managed to organize a network across the island. This had never really been done before. And he'd gone tremendous extremes of riding a bicycle around and putting out leaflets. He was an amazing guy. And the government, of course, was ignoring this and suppressing it. And then Jimmy Carter came to town and gave a speech in the university. And in his speech, he mentioned the Payas movement. The Carter people were very annoyed the next day when Grandma, that's the Communist Party newspaper, named after the boat that Fidel Castro came to Cuba <laughs> as a guerrilla leader. Grandma published his speech, but without any mention of his call for civil rights and a mention of this Payas movement. So they complained and the Grandma, the following day, had to actually reprint Carter's speech. And this was the first time many people even heard about this movement. So it was a big gain for Payam. And so the subsequent years, the next year or two, were basically covering this dissident movement that was eventually suppressed. It was actually uh, the night that the Gulf War began. I mean, I think this was, of course, the second Gulf War, right? The attack on Baghdad, etc. Castro used that night while the world, obviously, its attention was on this war in Iraq, rounded up 70 dissidents and put them all in jail. And they were in jail for a long time, basically put that to rest. So working in Cuba, it was such fun. It was like a cat and mouse game with the authorities. We had handlers. They were always very polite and nice to us. Uh, we were never in any danger because repression, unlike Chile's under Pinochet, repression in Cuba is psychological. It's a political and not physical at all. Nobody, well, not in recent years. The, the, it's, it's a more intelligent form of control, right? I always mm -hmm. say that two things work very efficiently in Cuba. One is the black market, absolutely efficient. <laughs> you know, like the Soviet Union, you can get anything on the black market. And then political control with infiltrators and neighborhood watch groups, Comités de Defensa de la Revolución. I lived in a house where I was the fifth Reuters correspondent to live there. And I was told that the old lady across the street on the balcony was the one that would be watching if I had any visitors and have to file a report. And we had a Cuban maid, and of course she was allowed to work for us by the government's Daisy to be able to earn hard currency working for a foreigner, she'd probably have to file a report at the end of the month. 
But, you know, that was all fun. I'm not a paranoid person and I was never worried about being chased, but they really kept us on a short leash. I mean, if you went out of town, I went once to the center of country with a TV cameraman to a village or town where two sugar mills had closed down. Dramatic economic collapse for this town. And we drove there and literally we drove to the entrance of one of the sugar mills and literally within 10 minutes of being there, I got a call from Havana from my handler saying, what are you doing there? <laughs> they knew exactly where I was because you had special number plates as a foreign correspondent, orange ones. So people knew that there was a foreign correspondent who'd driven in and it was quickly informed. So the information service is, is brutal, very, very efficient. Would that get in the way of you doing interviews then? Were there any stories you weren't able to complete because they got in your way? Almost oh, certainly. I mean, it was very hard to get information out of the Cuban government. Basically, you had to do a lot of footwork to get interviews, to get information. Very little was coming out of the government. Nobody wanted to speak. They say, no, you have to speak to the boss. And basically, there's only one person who was doing the talking. It was Fidel while he was alive, which brings me to the most important story I covered in Cuba was when he fell ill that night. It was a Sunday night. I was watching the news. I, I knew something was up because the day before, our photographer, Claudia Doubt, had gone to cover a speech by him in his native province in eastern Cuba. And she called me. She had a long telephoto lens and she could see his face, and she called me and said, he looks terrible, something wrong with this guy. And effectively, after that speech, he was raced to hospital in an ambulance, and we didn't know anything about this, of course. The next day, I was watching the Sunday evening news on the sofa at my house with my wife, Fiona, and the newscaster had a black suit on, a black tie, and that really set me alert. So I was obviously taping it, but I was ready to call Washington, the desk, the America's desk. And in fact, they announced that Roe was taking over temporarily because Fidel was ill. And so I phoned it in, in classic old style journalism. And we beat AP by seven minutes, which is quite a lot for a story of that dimension. And I won 2006 Reuters Journalist of the Year Award. Oh, wow. So that Congrats. Beat. Yeah, that more than makes up for the Canada thing, I think. Um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but interesting, yeah, phoning it in. I've only done that a couple times in my career. I actually phoned in a story. It reminds me of that scene in the movie Gandhi where Martin Sheen, the reporter for the New York Times or whoever goes, you know, is reading out the story over the phone. Mm. It certainly, yeah. A classic reporter thing. So you had reported Fidel Castro falling ill. Let's just take it from there. Yeah, um, covering Fidel was such fun. I mean, this is one of my big frustrations. I never got to sit down for an interview with him. I spoke to him five times, but it was always in like scrums or public situations. And the first time I spoke to him, I got a question in, was shortly after I got there. And he was visiting a school, and he wanted to say a few things, because things were going badly with the United States. So the press was organized. There was a garden coming down from the school, and there was a stone wall, and we were on the other side of the stone wall. 
And <laughs> fair enough, it's a low wall, right? When he left the school, he came and walked down to us. And this was all taped live on Cuban television because the leader was going to speak, right? So there were only two questions made to him. One was the first question by the Associated Press correspondent, Vivian Sequeira, Venezuelan correspondent for AP. She made a quick question, 45-minute answer. The man <laughs> to talk. And I was getting very frustrated. I didn't know where I could get a question in. Behind me was Roque, the France press photographer. And he realized my dilemma. And so he knew the structure of uh, the syntax of Fidel's speaking. So he, suddenly he nudged me on the back, like, go. <laughs> I shut out my question. Ten-second question on U.S. relations relations with the United States, and a 45-minute answer. Would you believe it? <laughs> I mean, he went on and on. At some point in his answer, he mentioned the Molotov-Ribbentrop pact between Germany and Soviet Union. It just went on and on. I was holding a tape recorder, and I was, like, desperate for a cigarette, and my hand was hurting. <laughs> it just went on. He liked to talk. And the only other few times that I spoke to him, it was like that. It was just a brief encounter. But never really got to grill him on issues. But he was certainly an amazing guy to cover, a historical figure. Yeah, wow. Yeah, that's <laughs> It's funny talking to somebody so important. And I imagine a 45-minute answer, you know, such an important guy. But at some points, it must just get, like, boring or onerous or just, why can't he wrap it up? Even oh yeah, it's obviously amazing to speak to Fidel Castro. But I mean, it, I covered five-hour speech in the National Assembly, and you'd have to listen to every word because invariably, somewhere at the end of his speech, he would drop a bombshell, and there you would have the news. So you really had to stay awake and listen to it all. I once covered a speech of his in on the west side of New York, almost Harlem. It was the Riverside Church. He was at the United Nations, right, for the 50th anniversary. And then there was a speech uh, on the Upper West Side of New York. When I got to this church, it was full of sympathizers, left-wing Americans, whatever. And he took hours in coming. And so people were tired. And when he came, he started talking. And this was a seven-hour speech. It was just went on and on. He rattled off aid statistics of around the world. I really sympathize with his amazing interpreter. She was just incredible. The stamina of oh, the wow. woman. Yeah. And by the time he finished, there wasn't a white person left in the church. They'd all gone home to, to bed. Basically, it was a black American, African-American audience. And many of the people would just sleep on the pews, on the benches of this church. He'd bore the tears out of everybody. <laughs> was there any news in it in the end or no? <laughs> uh, we got a story. Yeah, I mean, uh, CNN was there covering it. I can't remember what the lead was <laughs> after seven hours, but I filed a story from the church. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, practically the news by itself that it was seven hours long. Yeah, um, exactly. Wow. So where did things go from there? I went back to Washington to work as an editor on the America's desk and did that for four years. And that's when I went, because I was a Latin American expert, I was invited to the White House to that press conference in the Eisenhower room, is it, in the White House with Obama. 
who was a very nice guy, to meet in a small press conference. He came in, he was very tired, and he just sort of stretched out, very long legs, Obama has. He kissed all the girls, of course, and stretched out and said, ask me whatever you want. So it was a very good press conference, I guess, for Latin media. And so, yeah, I uh, enjoy working in Washington. I think it's a wonderful place for a journalist. It's just full of news and stories. It's such an easy place to work in terms of the availability of information. And it's a very comfortable place to live. It's probably the most comfortable town or city that I've ever lived in. So I was there for four years until I really wanted to get back out in the field. And there were a few jobs opening in Brazil. I'd always wanted to return to Brazil. And I waited for the one that I thought best suited me, which was covering politics in Brazilian. And that's where we are today. Seven years ago, I arrived. And the right, story has yeah. just got better and better because I arrived here and Brazil was heading into a recession and the left-wing president, Dilma Rousseff, was not doing too well. And eventually she got impeached. That was really exciting. So we've had political turbulence, economic crisis, and now we have a far-right president who basically he's a, a denier of the gravity of coronavirus and is trying to open the economy. So you have an added crisis of public health, and we don't know where it's going. It's this tremendous uncertainty in Brazil today. Yeah, things have just gotten crazier and crazier. I think people had thought it couldn't get crazier than the impeachment of Dilma Rousseff and the recession and things like that. And then Bolsonaro comes along and basically doing everything in the style of Trump with all the issues that brings with it. Uh, I guess that takes us up to the present. The next section, yeah, it's about stories. So is there a story that, quote unquote, got away for whatever reason, whether it was you couldn't convince an editor, you couldn't get the sources to prove it, you couldn't get key person to talk to you. Anything stick out to you? Well, obviously, I was going to tell you about not being able to interview Fidel Castro, but we've gone over that. More recently, last year, in fact, over the last year and a half, there was a story in Brazil. It was very frustrating. I couldn't get the goods to actually have it published. And basically, it's a story about French pharmaceutical company, Sanofi, produced a vaccine for dengue that was actually in the Philippines. They pulled it, and Sanofi executives went to jail, and there was a big fine after 100,000 kids had been vaccinated with this vaccine that proved to be not only useless, but it ran the risk of allowing or putting uh, the recipient in a situation of getting even worse, a more serious dengue. So the story in Brazil was that obviously Sanofi needed a country to show that this worked, right? And they'd spent, what, a billion and a half dollars developing this vaccine. And in Brazil, there was a state in the south, Paraná, that was not an important state in terms of dengue cases. Most of the dengue is up in the northeast or Rio and Sao Paulo states, but certainly not down in Paraná. They did have dengue, and the local government contracted Sanofi to supply the vaccine, and they had a vaccine campaign. They vaccinated as many people as they could, even as warnings were coming from the Philippines 
In the middle of the vaccination campaign, the Philippines incident took place and it continued to vaccinate people, although less people wanted. But the point of the story was we did a lot of reporting down there and I was working with our science editor in Chicago, Julie, and somebody in Paris also covers Sanofi. And the idea was to prove how this had failed. And eventually what we needed was to find people who got ill or actually my editors wanted to see if somebody had died as a result of being vaccinated. And that's something I never actually found. I mean, nobody was, that's the problem. Nobody actually died from the vaccine, which kind of killed the story. But even finding people who had fallen ill, because most people who were vaccinated, well, they'd get like a slight fever maybe or a slight sort of flu-like symptoms. And that was kind of normal. So I couldn't find anybody who had actually fallen ill. And I went to Paraná twice on this story. And the first time it was good reporting. I got some very good color down in uh, Port City, Paranagua, where the local government had really forced the campaign and tried to get as many people vaccinated as possible. So there were suspicions of why this state had done this, whether it was money paid, uh, officials had been bribed. There again, the governor, after his term was up, was later jailed. I think he's still in jail, Risha, the state governor. But it was for something else. It was bribes paid in some road contract and nothing to do with this vaccine. There was also suspicions of the health minister in Brasilia on the national level was from Paraná, was a friend of the governor's. And so he had taken part in the launching of the vaccination campaign in Paraná State. And so there were suspicions that he had pushed this as well. He actually had advocated this vaccine in meetings in the federal government. It was never adopted. And health experts advised against, the idea was to get the Sanofi Dengivax, it was called, the vaccine, get it adopted by the national federal health ministry for its national immunization campaign. And that would have been a tremendous success for Sanofi because it would have been millions and millions of shots that would have been sold here. And it never went that far because of what happened in the Philippines and because the public health experts here were advising against it. But in Paraná, they continued to vaccinate people. On my first trip, I was down in the port and I was in a hairdresser in a neighborhood and the mobile vaccination team arrived and they went in and tried to get people to take it. One person accepted it, others refused and the people giving the vaccine didn't really explain any of the risks that it implied. And so this was in the story as we drafted it. But then we needed more evidence of people who fell ill or not. And so I returned to Parana and went to a different part of the state where I'd heard of cases of people falling ill. But really, there were no deaths. And the story died there basically. It never got published, despite weeks of work on it. So was this vaccine pulled in the end in Parana? Was there any accountability in the end? Because they were still essentially giving out lots of useless vaccines, right? Yeah. The state medical authorities 
argue in favor of continuing. So you, you had to have three shots, right, months apart. And they said, look, it's best to continue because it could be helpful, right? <laughs> like hydroxychloroquine these days, that's their argument. But less and less people took it. So as a campaign for Sanofi, it became less and less useful. And it didn't do any good, although the government claims it did because the numbers went down, but that was a seasonal thing. The next season, there was less dengue, so the numbers did look better. So is this vaccine still given out in Parana? The campaign ended. Uh, you could still buy it in pharmacies if your doctor prescribes it, but basically it's been forgotten about. And of course, Sanofi is not pushing it because it's become so controversial. Wow. Yeah. I remember you reporting on that story and yeah, I wondered what had happened with it. It's unfortunate, but anyway, that's the one that didn't work out. I guess next let's talk about a story instead that you're proud of. The one I wanted to talk about is the Clusterbong story in okay. Chile. So I think we've covered that. That's totally fine then. Let me just think then if there's any other questions before we move on. I guess we just kind of skipped over your early years pretty quick. I'm just curious, you seem to have relatives all over the place. And how did that happen? And does it all root back to your father? How did all the Bodles end up in such diaspora, I guess? Well, the Bodles originally come from the Lake District in northern England, Cumbria. And it's a Norman name. I believe they were sheep farmers. But at one point, they moved to the coast, Whitehaven, to build ships as Britain in the 1700s was building lots of ships and becoming the supreme naval power of the world. And so one of my ancestors eventually owned a ship and moved to Liverpool. And from there would sail a ship to Trieste or to Australia. And he owned several ships. And it, sometimes his family traveled with him because these trips were months long sometimes. And in fact, one ship he owned sank in the Straits of Malacca. I actually found clippings in an Australian newspaper about this shipwreck. And he was aboard, but managed to get ashore with his family. He had two daughters on board and his wife. Just as well that they survive, otherwise I wouldn't be here talking to you. That was in the mid-1800s. His son worked for Mr. Holt, a big ship owner in Liverpool, who'd made his fortune, by the way. The whole family made their fortune in the slave trade until it was cut off by William Wilberforce and company. And the Holt family, they were a shipping family. Mr. Holt asked my great-grandfather, Thomas Scott Bodle, if he'd like to go and represent him in Buenos Aires. At this time, Argentina was taking off because of the fertile pampas becoming a source of food for Europe. And British capitalists were zeroing in on Argentina. And basically, Argentina was built by British entrepreneurs who allied themselves with the landowners of this fertile land. And the British built the trains, the ports, the meatpacking companies, even the gas works and the lights and set up the stock market in Buenos Aires. And basically, it was probably more profitable than many of Britain's colonies. Anyhow, Thomas Scott went out to Argentina and he was the shipping agent for a shipping line that later became known as Lamport and Holt. 
and then the Blue Star Line, and today it's the Vesti Group, right? My grandfather mm. also worked for that company, and he was born in Argentina, but he remained very English. He considered England home, and they went home. Since he worked in a shipping company, once a year they would go off to England and spend Christmas mm. there. He went to school in England. He was in trenches in British Army in the First World War, fighting the Germans. And my father was sent to England as well to school. And when he came out of school, the Second World War began. And he spent four years in India in the British Army fighting against the Japanese. And when the war was over, he went back to London, finished his studies, became a chartered accountant, first with Price Waterhouse and then Deloitte's. He met my mother in London, and then he returned to Buenos Aires to become a partner in Deloitte's, which is where he worked his whole life. And so basically, that's the Bodles of Argentina, if you like. My mother was born in Brazil, of a similar family, Anglo-Brazilian family, down in Rio Grande. And she was studying in London when she met my father through common relatives, and so I have family in Brazil as well, on my mother's side. And obviously, yeah, if your relatives have been coming back and forth since your great-grandfather, then it's ample time for aunts, uncles, sisters, cousins, brothers <laughs> to all spread out over the course of several generations, I imagine. Wow, that's quite the history. So the next part is the lightning round. It's much simpler questions than, you know, tell us the story of your life. So do you feel ready? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, first up, what is a must-read publication that you look at almost every day? New York Times. A lot of people say that one. What, what would you say you look at to make sure you don't miss news? Like, what, what would you look at more for work, I guess I would say? After the Reuters file, and of course, Brazilian newspapers, to get a well view, I think it's BBC and the New York Times. That's how I mostly follow what's going on in the world. What is a publication you read, listen to, or watch for fun? I subscribe to The New Yorker. It's a great magazine, and that's what I enjoy reading when I'm not in the middle of a news story. A little bunch of shows. Unfortunately, I don't get Saturday Night Live here, which I used to watch religiously in the States. We watch some of the late-night comedians, I guess. But recently, there hasn't been much time for that. We tune into CNN Basically, it's Cuomo and Don Lemon most nights. <laughs> gotcha. And then the next question is, what is the best journalistic article or piece, if it's not text, that's fine too, that you've consumed recently? Well, this is a story I really was impressed by. It's a Wall Street Journal story. I don't subscribe to the Wall Street Journal these days, but it's a very fine newspaper and has excellent reporting. It was a story about a soccer game in Italy that was at the center of spreading so much of the coronavirus. It's called The Soccer Match That Kicked Off Italy's Coronavirus Disaster. And it was so well reported. Uh, this was a team from Bergamo. Bergamo, as you know, was the epicenter in Lombardy. Its team, Atalanta, for the first time in decades, has got through to like a final. And there was a big game down in Milan. And they all went to see this game. And there were already coronavirus cases. And yet uh, it was on February 19th this game in Milan, and nobody took any precautions, etc. And the story is so good because it found people who were at that game, interviewed them, 
obviously Lombardy's Minister of Sport and Bergamo officials. I mean, things got really bad in Bergamo. And it was the first time ever that this team had been in the Champions League quarterfinals. That's right. And playing against a Spanish, a Spanish team. So it was a big game and nobody took any precautions. And Bergamo was very badly, very badly hit by this uh, epidemic. I thought that was an excellent story. Huh, yeah, I hadn't heard of that. I'll have to look it up. And then, is there any particular subject matter that you read about or interests you that isn't specifically related to your job? I, I read a lot about space exploration, space programs, and the technology there. Aviation as well. I'm a fanatic. I know a lot about planes. I've flown a lot in my life, and I just follow aviation very carefully and crashes get into details there. There's specific blogs and programs now on YouTube, just on aviation, that when I have a chance, I watch them, explanations of what went wrong in certain aviation disasters. Interesting. How do you manage your work-life balance, or do you even believe in it? I don't think about it. I just do. Do what I have to do. I must say, recently, I have tried to spend more time with my family. My wife is a teacher and she works very hard as well, but we make an effort to stick together, have meals together. That's important because it's the moment when we can really exchange views and stuff. With my wife, because of the reality we're living in, in Brazil's pandemic, we watch a lot of news together every night because so many things are happening that are making it rather risky to live in Brazil. So we're concerned about that. So news and family life, it's hard to separate these days, really. Makes sense. Is Twitter important to you? It is. Yeah, definitely. I think Twitter is where you also broadcast what you're reporting, broadcast what others are reporting and you think is important for other people to read. And you get the discussion and the feedback, which is also very useful. So Twitter is like my first stop, actually. Facebook is basically for family and friends, right? And WhatsApp is when you're actually reporting a story. But to inform yourself, Twitter is my first stop now in the morning to see what's happening in different areas and stories related to what I'm reporting on. So, yeah, Twitter is, is vital, I think. Next question is, if you had to trade places with one journalist, living or dead, and you would have their career, who would it be? Wow. Well... I don't know if he was originally a journalist, but the job I would like in the media, and unfortunately he's passed away, is Anthony Bourdain's job, traveling around the world, uh, eating and talking politics. <laughs> now, what better job could you have? He did it very well. I mean, he was originally a chef, wasn't he? Not a journalist, but certainly became an interesting reporter of culture and events around the world. I loved his programs and very sorry how he died, you know. There is a guy in Brazil that I like very much today. He's Fernando Gabeira. He works for Global News. And he pretty much been doing the same thing, but differently. I mean, he's just going around small villages, the interior of Brazil, speaking to people. I think that's a fabulous job also. And he he's an interesting character. I don't know if you know his history, 
When I arrived for the first time in Brazil, well, as a reporter in 82, he just got back from exile and he'd published a couple of books and he was really interesting. Fernando Gabeira was a member of a guerrilla group that, I don't know if you've seen the film Four Days in September about the American ambassador being kidnapped in Brazil, Ambassador Elbrick, and later released. Well, he was involved in that. I think he rented the hideaway house. And a year later, he was caught and imprisoned. But then another kidnapping took place of the German ambassador. And in return for his release, a bunch of political prisoners, 15, were released and put on a plane to Algeria. And one of them was Fernando Gabeira. He lived in exile in Europe, in Sweden, where, among other things, he worked as a metro driver on the subway system in Stockholm for years. And, you know, just a very interesting character. And, he's, you know, he's mellowed with age. He's 79 now, but he has an interesting past. And he's become also a political analyst on Global News, cable news channel, most days. But his programs of going around Brazil and showing Brazil that many Brazilians don't even know about and giving voice to people in the interior, they were excellent. I hope they continue. Huh, yeah, I'm actually not familiar with him. I'll have to look him up. And then what do you think you bring to the table that makes you a good journalist? I think it's the passion for communicating. You know, what is it that drives us? We write good stories, bad stories, all kinds of stories. But what is it day in and day out that really moves us and gives us adrenaline? It's the desire to communicate certain information to people we think that should know about and read, right? And I felt that passion from the day one that I started in Venezuela in Caracas as a reporter, and it's still strong today, so many years later. What is one thing you wish you could travel back in time and tell your younger self? <laughs> That's a good one. You know, when I was younger, maybe to be less partisan, less opinionated, listen more to the different arguments in any situation that would have helped a lot. Uh, it's only now it's with hindsight that you realize that it's not all the way you see it. And so it would have been helpful when I was younger to just pause and try to appreciate the other person's argument. That would have been a useful tool. Sure. And then what is one thing that most people don't know about you? <laughs> oh, shit. Um, <laughs> hmm. I have to think about that one. Oh, I don't know. Most people don't know that I was once a very good rugby player, <laughs> but gave up when I got to university. Most people don't know I lived in Liverpool, the city of the Beatles, and really enjoyed it. Most people don't know that I crossed the Atlantic on a cargo ship. Okay, interesting. When did you do that? I did it twice, actually. When I was at university in Liverpool, I went down to the docks and I wanted to get back home in Argentina. And there was an old Argentine ship. It looked so dodgy. And so I kept looking, and I found this very modern Brazilian cargo ship. Went aboard. The captain said, sure, we've got a big cabin there. Go and speak to the shipping agent. Paid him $100, or 100 pounds, actually. And I got a ride from Liverpool to Rio de Janeiro, across the Atlantic. It was wonderful. And then when I left England to go to Venezuela, we went by cargo ship from Rotterdam to La Guaira on a cargo boat. 
that spent a week in Bilbao. And it was fabulous crossing the Atlantic. I've done it three times, once on a passenger ship, but twice on cargo boats. And it's a wonderful place to read, depending how long your trip is. Usually it's five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten days. Crossing the ocean, there's tremendous swell of the sea. And then it's just like Christopher Columbus. One day you see a bird. Next day you see a twig, a branch floating in the sea and you realize you're getting close to land and then one day you get there it's a wonderful way to travel i guess that's where my family ancestry comes from you know the love of shipping yeah wow and then the next question is what is your favorite film book tv or whatever sort of media about journalists and why my favorite book for years was always scoop by evelyn Waugh. But anyhow, that's the book, films. Certainly recently, the most amazing film was Spotlight on the Boston Globe and covering that child molestation scandal in Boston Mm -hmm. and involving Catholic priests. It still doesn't quite beat my great favorite, which is All the President's Men, Watergate. That is such a great movie about journalism at its height, right? I think at the time... U.S. newspapers were at their very best, and they were influential. They mattered. And these two reporters, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, they, with the help of Deep Throat, they brought down a U.S. president. It was an amazing achievement. Catherine Graham and Ben Bradley, what a great editor, right? That's when the media really mattered, I think, more than today. Today is all over the place, isn't it? And then the last question is, qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? Man, I always wanted to be a Formula One racer. I think I'm a superb driver and a fast driver. But anyhow, that's just a boy thing. Well, qualifications Uh, aside, so I'll allow it. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously, if I had been a journalist, well, I have no idea. I mean, I stumbled across journalism and I've never looked back. I've never wanted to do anything else. And I'm not sure I can do much else. (laughs) But if I hadn't found journalism, what would I have liked to have been? A diplomat would have been nice. But I'm, mm-hmm. uh, I don't really have a country to be a diplomat from. I'm a citizen of the world, so I'm not sure where I'd be a diplomat, but I'd be good at that. Yeah, you'd see the world in too relativistic of a sense. That's what the American Foreign Service, they don't, don't want you to lose your Americanness and go yeah. native. So <laughs> they want you to staunchly support American policy, regardless of what it is. Yeah, um, I'm not sure I can do that. One thing I hate is nationalism. And I have two nationalities, Argentine and British. And I've always shied away from flags or saluting flags. So maybe I wouldn't be a good diplomat. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Well, uh, I think this went great. Jake, I just look forward to seeing you soon one day when this virus allows us to meet and have a beer. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. I'm ready for this to be over. So I just want to say thanks again so much for taking the time to do this, to talk to me. Pleasure, man. Pleasure. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Anthony Bodel, Reuters political correspondent in Brasilia. I'll post links to some of Anthony's work and other things we talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. 
If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave a five-star rating. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you also write it a positive review saying what you like about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at at ForeignPod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash ForeignPod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Makai Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, July 26th. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence. Correspondence.